Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. This season, we're building for the Fallout role-playing game, and even if you're not playing that game, what we're building can be lifted out and used in the post-apocalyptic system of your choice, and I know that because several of our listeners are doing that very thing. That being said, however, if you're needing a copy of the Fallout Gamebook, you can check out your local game or bookshop or hit up the Modifius Entertainment website. That's M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Okay, so I got an email late last week with a question I felt the need to address right here on the podcast. I was asked why all of the characters in my games tend to be cisgendered white men, and I do feel the need to note that the email wasn't a criticism, but rather a genuine question. And my answer is pretty simple. I write my characters the way they are because of my own experience. I've made no secret of the fact that I'm a 50-year-old cis white male. For me, that's what I identify with and am the most comfortable writing for. I have included women in my campaigns, both this season and last, but I admit that writing for LGBTAQ plus characters is something I'm having difficulty with, and that's not because I don't want to do it, but because I'm concerned about writing them as solid characters and not caricatures or stereotypes. That being said, I encourage you to alter any character we use in our campaign to represent you or people you know. Believe me, I don't claim to be the best at character creation, which is partially why I call myself the bad GM. So, make your campaign world as colorful as you'd like it to be. Or don't. I mean, that's totally your call. So with that addressed, let's go ahead and move on. We're not going to do a recap of last week, since last week was about building to fill some narrative holes I'd left in the build. If you missed the episode and you want to catch up, check it out in the archives. That brings us to this week's build. It's all about one encounter and one encounter only. The group getting to the Ledoux production facility utilized by Tucker Malloy and Jackson Denman. Now, before we start that, there are those who might think this is going to be the end of the second act, since I've been hyping this particular build so much. Short answer, no, it's not. The longer answer is that while it's not the end of the second act, we're probably no more than three episodes away from actually ending that act, and that's because I see the addition of a major player or players in the campaign as being the part of a new act. And for those who wonder if the third act is the final act, uh, no, that's not the plan at present. Plays can be more than three acts, though three acts is the standard. We're going to do as many acts as it takes to make our campaign the best that it can possibly be. If that winds up being a hundred, yeah, well, okay, maybe that's a bit much, but I think you get my point. Anywho, we've got a scenario to build, and since I'd like to give as many options as possible to handle it, we need to get to it. This will begin with the group meeting at the third base saloon with Victor. You'll need to refer to the calendar for your game for this, as depending on how many side jobs the group has done, you'll be either way ahead or way behind my group. So where this meeting takes place is specific to your group and your timeline. Also, if your group hasn't been doing business with Victor, the meeting will be with whomever they've been doing business with. If that happens to be multiple people, pick the one that's the most powerful or influential in your campaign world to have this particular conversation. He'll report that he's reached out to as many of his contacts as he's been able to over the past few days, or weeks, depending on how long it's been since they first had the discussion concerning the Ledoux facility. 
He doesn't have a whole lot of new information, but what he does know is that Malloy and Denman are running a factory of sorts out of Ledoux, and while it appears to be an old office building, they've somehow worked out underground space for whatever it is they're building. Now, I need to step back for a moment and note that while the group's been getting involved with the production of synths over the past several builds, we've never said exactly what was going on at the Ledoux facility. We've hinted at it possibly being synths, but we never said exactly. So, that's why Victor can't say exactly what's going on here. It's because he doesn't know and he can't seem to find out. Getting back into the discussion, he will remind the group that if Malloy and Denman are responsible for the synth courser the group ran into back at his storage facility, chances are good that they've got at least one, if not more. He'll also point out that owning and running a synth production facility will give them access to who knows how many synths. And even though they've dealt with Garson Tactical, the fact that Denman's been involved with them will probably mean they've got support from some of their people, though at this point it's probably going to be those who either weren't at the base when the group destroyed it, if that's what they did, or disagreed with the settlement the group came up with, if that happened to be the tactic they used. Let's also not forget that there are a number of other security measures that can and possibly are being utilized, so those need to be added to the list as well. Now, this puts the group at a severe disadvantage. While they know where the facility is, they don't have any intel about the layout, thanks to the underground portions of the building. They have no idea how much resistance they're going to be facing. And unless they destroyed the Garson base at Jefferson Barracks, they don't have enough firepower. Though even with two suits of power armor, they still might not have enough. So that brings us to decision time. As I see it, there's two options here. The first option is for the group to attempt a negotiation to end all hostilities. There are a couple of questions we need to address, though. The first is, what would the group expect out of it? The second is, what would Malloy and Denman expect out of it? And the third is, what happens if these negotiations take place and they manage to succeed? So what would the group expect out of a negotiation? Would they be looking for compensation? And if so, for who? Victor? Well, I'm sure some form of compensation would be expected, though that alone wouldn't be enough for the group, I'm sure. Would they want Malloy and Denman to hand over Longsworth? I mean, it's entirely possible the group did away with him when they ran into him last time, so that might not even be an issue here. But if they did let him go, it's entirely possible they ask about him. Then again, they might decide he's not worth asking for here and decide to track him down on their own. This is the part where I'm stuck, since I don't know what my group's going to want, other than for Malloy and Denman to leave town, which obviously isn't going to happen. So this is something we're going to have to work out on the fly when our groups run through this, and I apologize for that. Let's look at the second point. Malloy and Denman really want the group to come to work for them. They're impressed with the tenacity of the group, and the skills they've shown to this point would make them the perfect team to use to deal with their rivals. Of course, that means they'll be used to take out Victor, Melanie Zombrowski, and anyone else left running a family or organization of their own. And the options for negotiations with those people won't exist. It'll be a wholesale slaughter. Now, I know what you're thinking. Couldn't the group just agree to it, then turn on them later? Well, sure they could. But if you think Malloy and Denman haven't thought of that, then you're a couple of steps behind here. And unless your group happens to be a bunch of murder hobos with no real loyalties to anyone, the idea of going to work for Denman and Malloy won't appeal anyway. And they'll know that. 
For the record, we're going to assume they know pretty much everything about your group based on all the encounters the group's had with Garson and various other entities over the course of the campaign to this point. So they'll know if the group has a strong sense of loyalty or an aversion to killing for the sake of killing. If the job offer doesn't work, Denman and Malloy will insist the group leave St. Louis never to return. It's possible your group might want to do that. And if they do, well, unless you want to change the setting of your game to another city, that'll wrap the campaign. But I'm pretty sure that's not going to be an option either. So let's put a pin in that and hit the third question. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, both sides come to an agreement. What happens then? The group will be led to believe that Malloy and Denman are actually doing what they agreed to do. Here's the thing, though. They're not. They'll move their base of operations, put figureheads in charge, and run under the radar for a bit. Then they'll raise their heads up down the line at a time that is the most advantageous for them to get their revenge on the group. Now, needless to say, I don't see negotiations going very well, and if we're being really honest with ourselves, I don't think you do either. So we'll get to our second option in a minute, but let's go ahead and build option one out since we've worked out what the goals of a negotiation would be. Sort of. The group will need to reach out to Malloy and Denman, and let's be honest, they're not going to want to get anywhere near them. I mean, my group might want to, since they like to stir the pot like that, but Victor would point out to them that delivering a note to them in person would most likely be seen as a smokescreen for an attack, and he would discourage them from doing that. Instead, he'd provide them with a courier to deliver the message. If the group would rather handle finding a delivery person on their own, they're certainly more than welcome to do so, and you can use anyone they've run into over the course of the campaign to this point to handle that delivery. You can decide how that discussion would work and what compensation would be needed. We'll also assume that the group will ask for a neutral site, since they know Malloy and Denman will never agree to a meeting at a place of the group's choosing, and the group won't go to a spot Malloy and Denman choose. They'll probably suggest the Twisted Tap, but if not, there are always other options. Malloy and Denman will agree to the meeting with two conditions. The first is that it be held at the Twisted Tap due to it being neutral ground. The second is that no one carries weapons into the meeting, which is their guarantee the meeting isn't an assassination attempt. It's up to the group to decide whether or not they'll accept both conditions. Fortunately, Malloy and Denman are willing to drop the Twisted Tap suggestion, but they won't drop the no weapons deal. So if the group won't go for that, it's back to the drawing board. Or to paraphrase the Godfather, time to hit the mattresses. Let's run with the assumption the two sides can agree on the conditions for a meeting. Sylvia will again open her club for said meeting, though this time she's going to demand a favor from the group that she can cash in down the line. That is non-negotiable, and she won't ask Malloy and Denman for it because, in her words, they'll just cheat me out of it. You guys are as good as your word. Okay, so let's address the elephant in the room. Your group is probably going to be as paranoid as mine will be about yet another meeting at the Twisted Tap. I mean, you've got a group that's been trying to kill you for quite some time, and they want to meet in a building that could very easily be blown up or have holes shot through it. And in their minds, the only thing preventing it is the tradition that the tap is neutral ground. <laughs> Who's to say they won't break it? Well, here's where we're going to peel another layer off the onion, but this is for you and me only right now. Much like the Continental in the John Wick movies, the Twisted Tap is but one of many locations around the country that are considered to be neutral ground for those in certain lines of work. 
While pretty much everyone involved believes it's merely tradition, those who run them, like Sylvia, know the truth, which is that the policy is strictly enforced by another organization, and they're going to come into play in Act 3, so we'll just leave things vague for the moment. The group won't know about them, and neither do Malloy and Denman. Victor has heard rumors, but he's not bold enough to either speak them or act on them. If you need to have Sylvia reassure them, use this information to formulate her dialogue, and you can hint at it, but let's not make the big reveal for now. It'll be more fun (laughs) and better storytelling to let it be a surprise later on. Fast forwarding to the meeting itself, Malloy and Denman will arrive at the appointed time and enter the tap. They'll bring a couple of dozen synths with them, but as is policy, they'll wait outside. The group can send as many of their members in as they choose, but we both know they'll leave at least one member outside to keep an eye on the synths. We'll start with the outside. Nothing happens. The synths stand motionless for the entirety of the meeting. They don't move, they don't blink, they do nothing. Simple enough, so let's head inside. Now, the meeting will start with the normal formalities and introductions. Sylvia will make sure they've got someone to bring them drinks and make sure they're comfortable, but otherwise, it's just those involved in the discussions. What they talk about depends on what the expectations are from each side. We made Denman and Malloy's expectations pretty clear, so the group's going to have to convince them it's not worth their while. The very best the group can hope to get out of it is to agree to do three jobs for them, no questions asked. They'll be paid for them, of course, and paid well. However, they're probably not going to like what they'll be asked to do. I leave the group's expectations to you since we really didn't get a good answer in our earlier thoughts. If they want Longsworth, that's certainly going to be one. And this is where we finally get down to rolling. Charisma plus barter, difficulty five. Of course, one person can assist the character doing the negotiating. If they get all the successes for their points, they can get what they asked for. It'll take another roll to get Malloy and Denman down to the three-job requirement, and it's the same roll with the same difficulty. I should note here that Denman and Malloy insist on the terms being written out and signed by all present, and they write it out twice so that the group has a copy of their own. Once the deal's done, they all shake hands, and Denman and Malloy ask that they all walk out together to test, of course, to make sure the group isn't going to ambush them. And to alleviate your fears, there's no ambush coming. Each group heads off their separate ways. But as I said earlier, we're not done with Denman and Malloy by a long shot if this is the case. It'll make the storytelling down the line a bit different, but we'll get to that as we write things up. Okay, so we've covered option one in about as much detail as I think we can. So let's detail option two. Option two is an assault on the facility itself. Now, the group is sadly outnumbered in an all-out fight, but they can choose to do it that way if they want. The smart move would be to reach out to any source they have to see if they're willing to provide some help. Melanie Zombrowski is willing to provide a half a dozen of her people to help, as is Jesse Arnott or Barnabas O'Reilly. In fact, he's willing to lend the group a half a dozen super mutants for the job. Victor will be willing to give the group the use of a half a dozen Mr. Gutsies for the task, and that's going to be about all the manpower support they can get. But 18 additional bodies to help in the fight beats the heck out of the group just heading it alone. So let's game plan here. 
If the group has Zombrowski's help, or if they think to check with her to see if she's got any knowledge she can pass along, she can provide them with schematics of the facility. She won't say how she got them. She'll just grin slyly and say something about trade secrets. Here's what they're dealing with. The building's a small, one-story former deli that's been converted into office space. Nothing too fancy about that. The exterior's covered with three-shot laser turrets every three feet. There's no obvious gaps in that coverage, and they're supplemented with four machine gun turret Mark IVs with one placed at the top of each exterior wall. Stats for the turrets are on page 381, and the machine guns are on page 378 and 379. There's a closet in the office that's actually a stairwell down into the basement. That's where things get interesting. Originally intended to be a vault, the space was actually utilized by the top crime family in the city for personal use, and it's only about a fifth of the size of a standard vault. There aren't any fancy traps or anything in here, but there's plenty of space for scientific experiments and or the assembly of some sort of weapon. She's able to provide the group with the exact layout, and I'm going to leave that to you since you might have a particular layout you'd like to use. I also do that because I'm not yet sure how I want to physically lay it out. We can write it all up without that, though, since you can place things wherever you want them. Insofar as exterior manpower, her sources report that there are at least a dozen assorted security personnel out there. She knows for sure that there are two sentry bots, stats on pages 364 and 365, but the rest are either human or synth. For the humans, we'll use the Brotherhood of Steel Knight stats on page 383, and for the synths, we'll use the character sheet available on the Bad GM Productions website. That's what she knows, but it's a whole lot more than the group knew beforehand. The trip to Ladue will take about three hours, and the group will manage to get there without incident. So, here's how it plays out. The outside security is exactly how Melanie laid it out. If the group's got help, we need to divide and conquer here. Otherwise, you'll be making a lot of rolls against yourself, and the group might get bored. So let's break it up like this. There are two sentry bots, five humans, and five synths. Each group of good guys should be taking on a group of security. And if given the option, the super mutants would prefer to take the humans, though they can be convinced to take on the sentry bots. One thing to keep in mind here is that the security forces will make it a point to stay in range of the turrets, so make sure those are getting their shots in. And we'll play it out like this. The mutants and Zombrowski's forces will take out their targets, but lose half their strength. The Mr. Gutsies will take out the four machine guns and half the lasers by the time the main group is done, but it'll cost all of the Gutsies to do it. That'll leave our group and a half a dozen support staff. The support staff will take out half the turrets at a cost of half of them, you choose which group loses two, and our group will be responsible for the rest. That means that when the dust finally settles, it'll be the group and three support staff to handle what comes inside. Now... Backing up for a moment, if the group's got mini-nukes, they can and should be using them. Keep the stats and area coverage for those in mind, and also note that using them to attack the turrets will result in the walls of the building coming down, which will require them to do some digging. However, if they use them, we can say they'll save half the gutsies, which will come in handy later on. I'm not going to get into the details of the layout of the bunker. We discussed that already. What I am going to do is give you the internal security the group will have to go through. There are two synth coursers in here, stats on page 374, and two synth troopers, stats on page 376. 
How you want the assembled group to deal with them is up to you, but make sure you whittle down the support staff as you go along. At this point, there should be no more than six support. So use the stats for Mr. Gutsies, which are on page 362, Super Mutant Brutes, which are on page 368, and Minutemen, which are on pages 393 and 394. Slot them into initiative order and have the bad guys target them first. If it seems like things are going too easy, you can drop a few more of those synth troopers in there. Do it one at a time, though, because it would be very easy to overdo it and wind up killing the entire group, which we don't want. Once they've gotten through all of that, their reward is to make it to the production room, where they find the weapon they've been looking for, and it should scare the bejesus out of them. It's the largest nuclear bomb they've ever seen or heard of. At a glance, it's probably powerful enough to wipe out the entire city, for sure, and probably a decent chunk of the bi-state area. And as they enter the room, it begins a countdown from 20. This is where your intelligence plus science folks come into play. It'll take six successful checks to disarm the bomb, and their difficulty five with a complication range of 17 through 20. A complication means they shave two seconds off the clock, so we're going to add some drama here. If they succeed, they have options, but you can rest assured that their hired help will argue that their employers should share in the bounty. However, there's a surprise here, and we'll get to that momentarily. If they fail, they're probably braced for their fate. Draw it out the best you can before the explosion, which is going to be about 10 pounds of colored confetti. As it rains down on them, a voice they don't recognize comes across the speakers. It's female and sounds rather arrogant. I had a feeling you might make your way here. My brother and his idiot friend got too loud and drew too much attention to themselves. Fortunately, I had enough loyal people on site that we were able to save the situation from their stupidity. I can assure you, they won't be bothering you anymore. And if you need proof, check the closet at the rear of the room. Voice pauses for a moment and then gives a final warning. I will only say this once. So far as I'm concerned, our business is concluded. If you choose to press further, I will make sure it ends with all of you dead. Silence follows. And when the group checks the closet, they find the dead bodies of both Tucker Malloy and Jackson Denman, and they're riddled with bullets and laser holes. They're very dead and very human, so it's not a case of humans being replaced by synths. What the group chooses to do from here is up to them. There's a lot of salvageable materials they can get into, but again, if they've got help left, they're going to want equal cuts for their employers, though I'd also note there's plenty to go around. Check the book for the types of salvage they could pull out, or just come up with it on your own. This part of the story wraps with their successful return. Victor will be beaming with pride at their job well done, and Zombrowski and Arnott or Riley are also pleased. Again, work those conversations the way you see best, and end the session with the group leveling up. That'll bring us to what's next for the group. Obviously, the woman's voice should interest them a bit, and unless they manage to get all the data they got from Barnes Hospital way back when decoded, they're not going to know a whole lot about Denman's sister. And they might not care, and that's perfectly okay. If they're interested enough to start looking into her, that's also perfectly okay. Either way, next week's job is going to work out since it's going to seem like another mundane job, <laughs> at least until it's not. 
and we'll wrap our build here for this week. Next week, we'll build out that next job and begin to wrap up the second act of the campaign. Before we close this week, I wanted to remind all of our listeners that Bad GM Productions will be attending Archon 46 in Collinsville, Illinois, September 29th through October 1st. We'll be live in the game room and we'll be doing live check-ins throughout the convention. We'll also be doing a live role-playing history episode and the topic will be chosen by convention attendees. So, stop by and check out everything Archon 46 has to offer. And for all the details, check out their website, archonstl.org. That's A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L dot org. In the meanwhile, why not check out role-playing history? This week, we deep-dive the games Twilight 2000 and Aqualar, and they're both games I think you'd like to play at some point. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or on the website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out all the fine products produced by Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. You can follow us all over social media. And while this used to be the time where I'd list them all out, we've added several more. So rather than list them all here, check out the info box for this episode or our Contact Us page on the Bad GM Productions website, badgmproductions.net. Next week, we build the next job for our intrepid adventures and get them on the path to wrapping up the second act of our campaign. That's next week, though. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. 